If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. Welcome to the Speech Uncensored Podcast, your destination for nourishing your mind and flourishing in the medical speech and language pathology field. This week's guest is Dr. Katarina Haley, an associate professor of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Dr. Haley has specialized in acquired neurological communication disorders for more than 25 years, and her research is focused on the overlap of client-centered practice and clinical decision-making. Our topic today is on the FORC model, which was created to be a framework to build collaborative goals in aphasia therapy. I'm really excited about this talk. Um, I read the article that Dr. Haley published on this, and it opened up so many doors in my mind. I was so thrilled that she agreed to come on the podcast and talk about her framework and her model in more depth. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm your host. And without further ado, let's get into our topic. All right, I'm sitting down with Dr. Katarina Haley today, and I'm so excited to get to talk about um, some of your research in aphasia today. How are you? I'm great, Leanne. I'm, I'm really great. I'm very happy to be here. Yes, thank you so much for joining me. Um, you, you do a lot for our field in the realm of aphasia, and we're just going to be talking about like one part of that today. So um, with the fork model... And it's about building collaborative goals in aphasia therapy. And I'm, I always say I'm excited because I really am. Like, I love learning about this stuff, but I'm super pumped today because this model is really geared towards like the outpatient setting and community models, which is my main cup of tea. So I feel like this is really applicable to me today and I'm excited. So um, I, I want to know a little bit more about you, like where you are where you're working, what you're doing. Tell me all the things. All the things. So um, I am at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, which is a wonderful place to be. I've been here for a million years almost, but um, 20 something years. Um, I'm a full professor in the Department of um, Allied Health Sciences, the Division of Speech and Hearing Sciences. So I do research at the Center for Aphasia and Related Disorders at UNC, um, and I also teach uh, courses and do mentoring for students um, in our department and in our division. Excellent. Um, so in addition to the FORC model, um, you also have done a lot of work with Live Cards or LIV. Um, and this episode really isn't about that so much, but I just kind of like to talk about more of the stuff that you do. So really briefly, could you touch on that for us? Oh, okay. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that um, it's a little bit connected actually to, to the fork model because it's based on empowering people to be active 
um, after they have aphasia. It's mostly for aphasia um, and to be active in their own treatment planning. And with the LIV cards, uh, it stands for Life, Interests, and Values, and we uh, we call them LIV. Um, it is uh, an opportunity for people to talk about what they want to do in their lives um, and get really detailed about specific activities that um, that matter to them. And um, that can be used in many different ways in um, in treatment planning and also in, in actually doing the treatment. So we've developed them. Uh, they've been out for over 10 years. We are um, we're selling them through the Department of Allied Health Sciences. There's uh, 95 activity cards and then some other feeling cards and um, supplementary cards. We are um, working on a, uh, an app that's going to be released anytime now as well for that. Oh, that sounds awesome. And like a ton of work. So thank you. (laughs) Sure. Awesome. All right. I'll be sure to put a link in the show notes um, for the live cards to your website on um, University of North Carolina's like, I always call it like the ComDIS website area, but I know it has a different name because it's under card, right? It, It has the acronym card. Yeah, there's a uh, that's that stands for Center for Aphasia and Related Disorders. That's just us, and you can also get there directly by um, typing aphasia.unc.edu. takes us takes you directly to our website. Excellent. Okay, I wrote that down. <laughs> that was really good. All right. Um, so before we jump into the fork model. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about your kind of current lines of research and what that looks like right now, because I hear you just achieved um, a major grant that's like really exciting. So can you tell me a little bit more about that work you'll be doing and have been doing for quite some time? (laughs) Sure. It's probably the topic of another podcast, but um, (laughs) yeah, we're super excited. We have a five-year grant um, awarded by the NIH that we have just started. And uh, the purpose of this grant is to do a really large uh, study of folks after stroke to understand what um, what their speech sounds like and how we should best assess and, and um, diagnose it. We are mainly interested in diagnosing apraxia of speech um, and doing it in a quantitative way and in a systematic way because um, it is so very difficult to diagnose and um, it's a persistent problem and we think there may be reasons that it is so difficult. Um, and so we want to tackle some of those reasons theoretically. And then we're working to develop better diagnostic tools, better software, better methods, better, better tests, um, uh, and, uh, make them available for, for free to everybody as well as getting some basic, um, uh, understanding about the incidence, um, of this disorder and predict how it responds to different methods of treatment. Wow, that sounds all-encompassing, like incredibly encompassing. No wonder it's going to take five years at least. Like, wow, you're talking about like treatment modalities, getting a better um, the diagnostic tool, creating like systematic ways to measure and quantify. That's I can barely wrap my head around that. You're going to be very busy. Yeah, and I'm doing, I should also mention this. So my partner in crime um, 
for that, we have some wonderful cl clinical staff and clinical collaborators, but also Adam Jacks is um, my colleague here at UNC. So he and I are, are doing this together. He's also, um, he's an associate professor here. Awesome. Good. Things are better when you have more than one brain to tackle a project. That is the truth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm like really pumped. I want the five years to hurry up and happen because I would love to like already have access to the outcomes of that. Like, that's awesome. Like, yay. All right. Well, okay. So let's turn our attention to Fork. Okay. Um, all right. So I came across this um, by... Um, getting exposed to like a, a packet that Megan Sutton made for tactus therapy about aphasia goals. Like how can we write better, uh, more patient centered um, with meaningful goals for our patients with aphasia and therapy. And so she talked about using the fork model and I was like, well, this is interesting. Let me dig a little deeper. And so I found your paper that was published in the American journal of speech language pathology in February, 2019 and it's like really helpful. Like sometimes I read articles and they're like, I don't know, maybe a little bit too dense for me. <laughs> I'm like, where's the applicable tool? And this is also applicable. So thank you for doing, you know, research with the clinician in mind. That's really helpful for us. Yeah, I, I'll add to that. It's actually, I'm really proud of that article um, because it was really not just written for practicing clinicians. It was written with practicing clinicians. And it was based on two years of fine tuning and shaping and learning by doing in an actual, uh, well, two actual clinical settings. Um, so it was truly collaborative um, and truly involving um, boots on the ground and the realities of, of clinical care. So I, I, really, I really like working that way. Mm. Yes. And yeah, the results are exceptional because then I can, you know, read this article and I've got examples of how it worked with case studies and I can modify and apply that to my unique patients and I can, I can take this framework and, and use it. And that's really helpful. So um, let's start at the beginning. Um, Katerina, can you tell me what is FORK? Fork is wordplay, actually. It's like uh, the the play of words with uh, with live cards. Um, Fork is not really a um, it's an it's not an acronym. It stands for four C's, uh, and uh, those C's are steps, sequential steps in what you do first, what you do next, what you do third, what you do fourth, four times. It's also um, uh, indicating a, a fork a fork that has four prongs, and each prong is a way to address uh, a, a difficult problem. In our case, the difficult problem is language intervention. Um, so that's what it stands for. Um, it is basically uh, a model that um, we developed for doing good holistic therapy, uh, for integrating um, effective um, strategies uh, in a coordinated fashion when you deliver the therapy and also to demystify what language therapy is all about for the person with aphasia so that they can become an active um, collaborator. And uh, it's also a way to infuse methods of supporting motivation um, and helping 
people achieve mental wellness and mental health and set them on a path towards positive growth. So it aspires to be a lot of different things. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm so glad that you've added in that um, kind of like psychosocial aspect of it, because I feel like so often we just focus on the impairment or the the obstacle to their participation in daily life. And we don't necessarily take into account the impact it's had on their, their mental health and their well-being and this drastic change in like every aspect of their life since having a stroke or some other injury that's resulted in aphasia. So I'm really glad that you like add that and consider that and see that it's an important part. Yeah. And it's, it's with, with aphasia often, there's a, a trajectory towards isolation and uh, mental health, um, distress, uh, depression. But even beyond that, it's, um, it's very important when you're learning and you're growing and adapting to, to feel um, uh, like you're in charge and to feel like you know what you're, what you're working towards. And I think a lot of times that that isn't very salient in aphasia therapy for for people. They feel like things are done to them, or they're engaging in different activities, but they don't really get it. <laughs> and they trust that maybe maybe this will make things better, uh, or sometimes they will just check out mentally and feel like, okay, I'm doing these exercises, but I don't really see what where it's leading. Um, and so I think just for, for that reason, too, it's very important to help people um, feel like they're doing something for themselves and they're doing something in the long run for themselves. Yes, yes. Ooh, that's so important. That's such an important part Yeah, of our therapy is empowering the person you're working for to take that ownership back over because, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I also feel like it's really relevant to mention like how fork is spelled because when we say it, people might be imagining like the eating utensil F O R K. But as you mentioned, it is, um, representative of the four C's, the four sequential steps. So the fork model is spelled F O U R C and it's in all caps. So the links to the article and other information will be on the website in the show notes. But just in case like people are like thinking about this and registering it as we're talking about it, I kind of wanted to give them a clear picture <laughs> to start off on. So now I want to shift gears just ever so slightly and talk about how Fork compares with other um, models or frameworks that are out there. Now, as far as I know, I'm not I'm not an expert in the literature, but I don't think that there are any other frameworks out there about writing goals. Well, except for like SMART and SMARTER, like that acronym, but writing goals for aphasia therapy. Um, There are other types of frameworks about aphasia therapy in general. Um, So do we want to talk a little bit about like how that interacts with FORC or how it's been a basis of like approaching things like I'm thinking of the LPAA model and AFROM. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's interesting. Um, 
uh, how all of this is, is unfolding and it's opening up my eyes and opening up new ways to explore truth here. So let's go ahead and start with, um, with A from. So A from was developed as a framework for outcome measurements in aphasia. And it makes the case that aphasia is not only about the impairment. Um, it's not only about the language impairment, but it's also about um, environmental factors. It's about personal factors, and it's about life participation. And all of those things um, are um, uh, are experiences that people come with when they come to aphasia therapy. And we can uh, do therapy that addresses all of those different domains. So um, that's that's where I started, and I, I fully endorse that. That it makes perfect sense. It's um, absolutely the truth. Uh, but what I wanted to do is I wanted to develop a model for how to do therapy, uh, not just thinking about the domains that are involved and how how far therapy might reach. I wanted a practical uh, structure structure for for therapists and for for clients to to know how to do good therapy and one of the things that i am feeling really strongly about is that goals um goals can be a lot of different things so goals can be really powerful or they can be really frustrating I think that when goals, when we use goals for something as important as aphasia therapy, goals need to be uh, powerful and they need to uh, reflect what we want to do in therapy and what we do in therapy. Um, And so I'm doing a whole lot of work on that as well to understand how we write goals and how we might change how we write goals um, so that we're thinking about all of our different audiences uh, when we're doing it. Um, so, and, and by different audiences, you mean like the different settings, like acute care, outpatient, that, that kind of thing. Yes. I, and I also mean reimbursers. Um, sometimes we feel like that's who we're writing, go- who we write goals for or our administrators. Uh, but really we write goals for or with people with aphasia and there can be uh, a mismatch there sometimes um and and speech pathologists sometimes feel like they you know there's there's certain things you do on paper and then you have to do so much more in actual therapy uh and it's it's there's just not enough time there's not enough um structure to you know to do that effectively so with Fork, we are, it's, it's really a, a model of how to do good therapy and goal setting is part of that because I feel like it needs to be central. We have to be accountable for the time that we spend doing aphasia therapy. Um, and goal, everything flows from good goals. You know, you know where you're heading, um, what you're aiming for, um, then you're going to be go- doing good therapy. So it comes also from that notion of starting with the end in mind um, that we have we have a goal, and and then we have sub goals towards reaching that goal. And I think that's been really helpful um, reading through that article and seeing how that's structured. As there is the the long term goal, and then um, 
a series of uh, intermediate goals that follow kind of those four prongs of the fork model. So sometimes as clinicians, we get um, really hung up on just writing um, strategy type goals or goals targeting a certain kind of skill or ability. And we're not looking at the other areas that are important to communication and participation. Um, and we kind of miss out and lose out on that. And then the other aspect is that like sometimes the short-term and long-term goals are identical. And the only thing that changes is like the accuracy level, or they need less assistance from the clinician. Um, and this is kind of like showing a, a different way that you can tease out addressing environmental supports and confidence and motivation with different types of like sub goals, all while targeting like the one central long-term goal. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we, we have data actually that shows that we are speech pathologists in general. We tend to really focus on skills and abilities and uh, intentional strategies. And then we try to also do good work in, in other areas, but it's not usually in involved in our goal setting and not strategic and not coordinated uh, with those other um, uh, foci of our intervention. And what we are trying to do is to make it uh, coordinated and actually uh, challenge challenge you to think about writing environmental supports that would um, complement your skills and abilities, intentional strategies that you're working on so that folks will have uh, a way to to uh, apply what they have learned in other contexts, in other settings, um, and also so that they can uh, experience more immediate success. Um, and, and people really get this, uh, that, you know, it's normal for, for adults who are um, all their lives, they've been engaged in complex problem solving. And we know that we need to address complex problems through several different strategies. Um, so it makes perfect sense to them. And they often feel, uh, an, they, there's a, an opportunity to feel an immediate sense of accomplishment in that you can do certain things to, um, towards achieving your goal immediately. And you can see those effects sooner than you might see effects of learning that will take a little bit longer, perhaps. Um, and yes, and then there's that big prong of motivation and, and uh, confidence that um, I think is extremely important and has honestly been lacking in our literature, strangely. How, how can we see a shift in that? Like, how do we um, start bringing in more of that emphasis on confidence and motivation? Um, we know we need to build a very strong therapeutic alliance, or, you know, we won't get what we call, you know, buy-in from the client. And I don't really like that term because it, it kind of implies I'm trying to sell them on something and I have to convince them of something. Um, but like, we all want to communicate and participate and engage. That's for me, an outpatient, that's why they're there. That's why they're making the effort of leaving their home and coming to therapy. So there's that level of motivation right there. Um, so like, I think, you know, my hang up with writing goals is that, you know, we need to measure it somehow. We have to report how it goes. So when we get into things that are quite intangible, we look for ways to quantify them. And sometimes using like a patient reported outcome measure is really helpful in that endeavor. Um, 
But how else might we think of incorporating this element of creating a goal or, or a focus of our therapy to look at confidence and motivation in our patient? What are your thoughts? Uh, so this is the more I'm thinking about this, the more I'm realizing that this is this is even bigger. Um, I I think that we really need to develop some better um, some better models um, for how to do therapy and how to train ourselves to do better therapy. <laughs> but I think I also think that speech language pathologists have an awful lot of great skills um, that we um, we can recruit in this effort. So what I'm going to say is that it's not so much about measurement because you can measure almost anything if you kind of shift your perspective. Um, I think that it's more about, in a way, giving up um, control. And I mean that in a, in, a, in a very respectful way. I think we are often uh, going into therapy with the assumption that uh, under a medical model, we're going to fi- figure out what the problem is. We're going to offer a solution. We're going to ask uh, for input from the patient. And then we're going to ensure that we have buy-in from the patient and the patient's family uh, in terms of the plan that we're developing. Um, and then we're expecting them to be on board and do their part um, uh, towards uh, the goals that we have articulated for them. And what I... Um, uh, I'm learning um, very, very clearly is that um, that's not really the most powerful way for people to learn and to be motivated. And instead, what we need to do is we need to skillfully step step away and withhold our own impulse to solve problems and give solutions and write goals and let the person discover for themselves what they need and what works for them at this particular moment in time. And there's an awful lot to be discovered about the whole continuum of care. Uh, And I'm really excited about continuing development in that area. But uh, in a nutshell, when people are able to take little steps on their own, figure things out on their own, um, then that is very powerful for motivation. When people feel like they have a choice, they feel like they're willfully um, selecting to do um, this kind of exercise or or go out into their community and and take this initiative. When they feel like they're competent in doing that, they they notice that um, they have more skills than they thought. They, they know more than they thought. And the therapist is listening to them. And the therapist is rolling with their, with their suggestions and, and adding to it. Um, then it becomes a partnership and it becomes something that's um, a, a whole uh, lot different than being given a prescription to do certain exercises. So yes. mm-hmm. I'm like totally on board with that. But, and I'll use myself as an example, because like that first like medical model that you described, I was like checking off the boxes. I was like, yep, yep, yep. That's me. That's how I practice all the way down. And as I've been um, having these conversations and doing these interviews and learning about like the shift in our practice, um, and I've been trying to to do that in my own practice, I, f- I find... Um, 
I think I need a lot more guidance and how to execute that because when what what I'm doing that I think I'm I'm giving over that leadership that I'm like taking a step back and I I'm you know asking the patient you know, what direction would you like to go? And I, I often get blank stares and they look back at me and they're like, well, you're the expert. I'm here for you to tell me what to do. And I'm like, well, it's a partnership. Yes, but I need input from you too, you know? And Absolutely. so, so that's actually one of the major motivations for the fork model, because, um, I mean, you can just look at the acronym. You can look at that. We have a little visual. Um, so it looks like a fork. It has those four prongs. Each prong is a different color. And what it's the, one of the reasons for that visual is we share that with a patient. You know, when we say, here's what we're going to do. And they, the first time they do this, uh, this problem solving, they, they don't, you know, fully understand it. Uh, but then after they have done it once, um, it starts to just really make sense to them. So as we're going through um, and doing the planning, we're saying, okay, we have these, these four prongs. Let's talk about them. Um, and um, I don't know if we should move into the sequential steps right here. Oh, yeah, sure. It, yeah, this works. Let's do it. So the, the first step of the, of the sequence is that you, you select a communication goal, and that's really important um, so that the patients know that we're heading – we're. The, the end goal here for what we're doing right now is going to be something that's going to help me in communication. Um, so they know that they're going to achieve something tangible to them. We articulate that in their own language uh, with their own, um, um, how they express this. Um, and then we start problem solving. How are we going to be um, able to achieve those goals? So we say, you know, I have a lot of experience working with aphasia. I, I know a lot of things about different therapies, but we're going to start with you. So that's actually the the second step. And that that is on purpose. It's to help the, the clinician step back and not get into that expert trap of creating a solution. So we're asking the person uh, with aphasia to to tell us what would you like to learn uh, what are some things you would like to be able to say, for example, in order to achieve this communication goal? Uh, and then we ask systematically um, about each prong. And each prong has a different color paper, a different, uh, a different symbol to help them internalize this process so that they understand how we're doing um, aphasia therapy. And that's uh, very powerful when they say, um, when they articulate, you know, maybe it's not uh, polished or you, it has to be tweaked, but by starting with their own words and their own problem solving, um, then it's, uh, you have an opportunity to then jump in. And as the next step, you do a collaboration. So starting with their suggestions, you then develop, uh, develop them further. Um, the, the scenario that you shared where you say, uh, what would you like to do in aphasia therapy? And everyone is going to say, I do not know. <laughs> <laughs> it's an unfair question to ask. I mean, they don't know. They barely know what aphasia is. And they're like, they're discovering how it's affecting their lives right now. But it's a complex disorder. Um, uh, 
and and they have never been in aphasia therapy before, at least most of them haven't been, and they certainly haven't planned aphasia therapy. So it's pretty unfair to ask them to to tell you what what they would like to do. Um, but when you give them a model like this and you say, okay, we're going to do this together. Here's the first step. What you need, what I would need you to do is to just think about some things, you know, and so they can become um, involved that way. And then after a while, they begin to see that they um, are making choices. They are making suggestions and you um, react to them in a way that they feel that they're engaged, they're, they're partner with you, uh, and they're competent in that way. And then they become uh, involved in um, knowing what they're working towards. It's not a mystery to them anymore. I think it's so interesting when you, you ask people with aphasia, you know, what did you work on in therapy? Um, they hardly remember um, if they remember anything, they remember some exercises, but they don't know like often like why they did those exercises. Or they say, well, I work with my speech pathologist and she was amazing. Well, why was she amazing? And it has to do with all of those interpersonal skills that we were the person that they could feel like they were competent with, that they could have actual conversations with. Yeah, but then they weren't able to carry that outside of the session and be that successful. Right. Cause there wasn't, we didn't capitalize on that relationship to translate that into a true, um, um, coaching, um, type of relationship where, where they are in control over their own learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, I'm totally tracking and I'm on board with all of this, <laughs> But then I sit down and I think about the hour that I'm allotted to do that initial assessment period, um, you know, meet the client, get to know them, find out what we need to be working on in therapy. And then like that same day, I've got to, you know, write up their report, write their goals. So what I'm thinking about is what is the time, typical time spent on processing through those four sequential steps of the fork model with a patient? Is this something that can be done along with our typical assessments um, during that first eval time? Like when you talked about partnering with practicing clinicians, um, what did that look like when they implemented it in their practice? Yeah, this is a great question. Uh, and so what you're actually asking is how do we, how do we, how do we make a powerful, um, aphasia therapy, uh, work within the medical model constraints that we have right now? Yes, that's exactly. Thank you for wording that so perfectly. <laughs> yep, you just do your diagnostic and then you, 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 you write a prescription. So, uh, yeah, we have to work around it. I have a couple of answers for you. Um, First, in terms of how we did this, we typically would um, choose a communication goal during these two years that we were working in outpatient settings with clients. Uh, we'd choose a, a, a communication goal and start uh, to create um, client solutions uh, with um, some, some collaboration, and then we could nail down what those goals were 
after the first session. So we did that in one session. Uh, but then the whole point of it is that it just keeps going. So the, the, the model is part of your therapy and you do it all the time. Like it, it's something that permeates everything you do. Now, I think there are different solutions for this, depending on what setting you are in, uh, in terms of how you have to write your goals that very same day um, and how you might have some flexibility with your long-term goals and your short-term goals. So right now, what we're doing is we're collecting um, information from practicing clinicians about certain barriers that they have in their practice um, to offer some different solutions, because I think there might be some different ways to, to get around the um, documentation um, restrictions that we have to set very complex goals in a, in a very short uh, period of time, uh, where you can have certain things that are um, there are maybe more standard uh, for your documentation purposes, and then you elaborate more as part of the detailed care plan for your patient. So, um, so I'm hoping that we will have more publications about that and more also on our website. Uh, we are, um, we're, we're, um, disseminating some of this information as well to help clinicians along. Okay. So what I'm just going to try to kind of summarize and see if I've got the gist of it. Um, fork is a, not just a, a one-time use, like during the initial assessment period to establish goals for therapy. It is a, a collaboration that you continue working on and returning to and altering over the course of therapy. It's also used as a guide to make sure you're kind of still tracking with the patient's needs and, um, tracking that success as well as they're progressing. Yes. It becomes part of your, your treatment. Yeah. Okay. All right. Got it. All right. That makes sense. Okay. So where we're at on the fork model, we've talked about the four C's, the four sequential steps. We begin with choosing a communication goal together so that the patient has something tangible that they're, they know that they're working on in therapy. And then you work together with um, creating client solutions. So you're problem solving, finding out what they would like to learn, uh, what they want to be able to say in therapy. You go through the four prongs, which we're going to transition and talk about a little bit more in depth soon. And then the next step after that is collaborating on a plan where you're developing their solutions into like a plan that you're going to execute which is the final step complete and then continue. Cause it's that cycle that you were just talking about that you. Yeah. And it's iterative. And I want to say also, as you're starting to, uh, to do that, you will find that there are going to be obstacles and that is really important in aphasia therapy. Um, I think for motivation purposes and for the long-term effects is that your client is involved with problem solving, like fi figuring out how to manage various barriers and how to modify. So that part of it, part of the uh, continue part, it's, it's understood that it's not uh, typically going to be set in stone that, that uh, plan that you had originally. <laughs> yes. Okay, good. Yeah. I think that is important. Um, 
to highlight that circumstances are changing, the patient's uh, abilities are changing. And so, I mean, let's use the pandemic as a great example. I mean, who saw this coming? But now it's drastically changed how we interact, who we're interacting with. Yeah. Um, and so there's quite a lot of new obstacles to problem solve through that we didn't have to at the beginning of this year. So we just never know what's around the corner that we're going to have to address in therapy that's going to alter, you know, how we're going about um, addressing the patient's concerns and getting them communicating and participating. So very good. Okay. Um, I, I, I tend to like, uh, define and compartmentalize things in my brain to help me understand things that I'm learning. And when I first encountered, you know, the fork model, I just, I just narrowly defined it as, okay, a way to build relevant and personalized goals for aphasia therapy. But as you mentioned, like at the beginning of our talk, it's so much more than that. It's a framework for doing aphasia therapy. Yeah. <laughs> so when we begin with the end in mind, we begin by writing the goals and planning out our therapy as a collaborative effort that is um, edited, that is, you know, changed over the course of time as different factors come up as more important or less important or change how we're going about things like it, it has to be flexible. And so this is a model to keep track of that and to do that. This is very helpful. I'm like, it's, it's sinking in now. <laughs> um, Leon, I'll tell you too, that when we wrote this, this is a very practical tutorial that, that we published in the American Journal of Speech Language Pathology. And we're working on um, explaining more of the theory behind it as well. So there'll be, there'll be more, more to come. <laughs> good, good. That's excellent. Yeah. I'd love to um, be able to cite that like in the future, like go back and add these to the show notes, you know, as people find this episode later and they learn about it, they can stay up to date on the advancements and the additions um, that come out in the literature. That would be really great. Um, okay. Well, as promised, let's talk about those four synchronized intervention prongs of the fork model. We've kind of, we've touched on them during our conversation, um, but we really haven't like explicitly discussed each of the four just on their own. Um, so I hand it over to you now. Okay, sure. Yeah. So there are four, four of the prongs. The first two are very familiar with speech pathologists. So skills and abilities. So these are the, um, the language goals that we have for, for people learning what to say, learning, um, to improve in certain processes, psycholinguistic processes, maybe, or certain modalities. Um, and then intentional strategies. And by that, we mean strategies that are known to the person with aphasia. So um, uh, if they, um, as most people with aphasia, are, are have um, strong executive functioning skills or adequate ex executive functioning skills, um, they're able to engage in different kinds of self-cueing. They're able to do repair, uh, problem-solving. They can uh, guide their conversation partners and tell them how to interact pro properly with them. Um, and they can um, navigate uh, multiple modalities to communicate with uh, and through. And 
those are skills that we are most of us are are quite familiar with and where we address. Uh, one of the things that we might not be addressing so much as speech language pathologists is independent learning. Um, and I think that that is a mistake because independent learning is going, going to be helpful during the rehabilitation process. Uh, and it's certainly going to be critical after as people um, have desires to continue to grow and learn. So they need strategies for how to teach themselves and how to, um, how to get um, better at what they want to get better at. So that's the second prong. Um, and the third prong is one that um, we are also fairly familiar with, m many of us, but it's interesting. Uh, it's, we call it the environmental supports prong. And it's interesting that often people don't write goals about that prong. Um, we're learning. And, and it's like we're, we're trying to accomplish this without having explicit goals about it. Um, it involves things like um, training communication partners, um, families, and others to um, communicate effectively with a person with aphasia, setting things up in communities where there's awareness of aphasia, um, having social opportunity um, to be able to get out of the house and engage with, with people socially, um, having access to visual supports. Um, and opportunities to uh, affect your environments and reduce res uh, distractions in that environment so you can focus your cognitive resources on the communication. There are things like that we're, that we're aware of, but what we're finding is that often they're like, they're treated on the fringes. It's like, you know, people are getting a, a maybe a information sheet about this is how you reduce distractions or, um, this is how maybe a, a quick um, interaction with a communication partner, how to how to communicate effectively with a person with aphasia, uh, when really many speech pathologists would like to spend a lot more time on this um, and and in co uh, coordinate this with the learning that's occurring. So I mentioned before that you want to have supports for, um, taking what you've learned in the aphasia clinic out into your real life, well, a lot of the ways that you can do that is through environmental supports um, that you have with you. And uh, and so we just want to advocate for um, environmental supports as being actual goals that you can write about and address in your aphasia therapy. Um, and then the last one is confidence and motivation, and that's huge. <laughs> so we call it confidence and motivation, and it's a prime that um, is it's also infused in the whole model. And it's not just about those two um, concepts. It's about psychology in general. It's, it's about your mood. It's about your motivation and all of those things. We call it confidence and motivation because it's something that's um, accessible to people. They, they feel good about talking about that, even if they may not perceive of themselves as being, you know, um, ones to talk about their feelings much. <laughs> uh, so it's an easy way to get into those aspects. And, uh, and often we say that uh, you know, the person wasn't motivated, the family wasn't motivated, and so therapy didn't work out. Or, you know, in order for this therapy to work, we have to have a really motivated um, uh, client. 
And the truth of motivation is that it's not an inherent property that we are that we have, and it, it just is a static thing. Motivation really, really um, varies. Um, there are all kinds of different flavors of motivation, and there are flavors of motivation that are more controlled, where you're doing things because you feel pressure to do it, or you feel maybe some guilt. There are things that you do because you fully endorse them. Um, they're called autonomous forms of motivation. Um, and then there's a whole spectrum in between. And those that are more autonomy, um, um, autonomous forms of motivation are ones that are really going to make us change <laughs> and um, will um, be how we focus our, our priorities in life. So that is uh, infused in the whole um, fork um, philosophy um, that we want to um, strengthen that. And we strengthen that um, primarily uh, by, by leaning on something called self-determination theory. Um, that is a, a, a big, well-researched theory um, that has uh, lots of evidence for it. It just hasn't been applied very much in speech-language pathology which I think is a mistake. So there are many, uh, many, many <laughs> ways that we can apply it really effectively. Um, so anyways, going back to that, that, um, that prong, it's a specific prong where we're asking the team, the speech language pathologist and the client to figure out for a particular communication goal. Remember the, all the forks are getting at one particular communication goal. How can you work psychologically towards this goal? How can you um, learn more about yourself and your aphasia um, and how you interact with people by reflection? How can you put yourself in like a social challenge that's successful to you? And how can you learn um, more about what you're actually capable of doing so that you can grow that way? Um, and I think that's so important because that's what's often is preventing people from taking even stuff that they've learned in therapy that's very concrete, let's say learning a script or, or something like that. It prevents them, the, the, one of the barriers that is preventing them from taking it out to actually using it in, in real life is this anxiety that comes with what if it breaks down, when it breaks down, what am I going to do? <laughs> And what if I look stupid? Um, and um, that's just something we can't ignore. And we have to work through it to help build resilience and confidence about um, those very challenging social situations. Yes, yes. Okay, good. Um, like, that's why I appreciate you doing the work that you do and um creating these models and publishing on them to bring my awareness back to making that not just a fringe element of therapy, but something with a um, written goal, like a target that we're all aware of, that we talk about explicitly and openly. And we address as just a, as a valuable part of therapy as um, improving a skill or you know a strategy. What? You know what? I can be bold here with you, right? I, I might even say that it's maybe the most important one, you know, long term. <laughs> yeah, because like you mentioned, they can 
They can do it wonderfully in our sessions because they feel safe and they feel confident in that, you know, small room with the door closed. But when they go out into their their world, their life, and they don't, they're worried about how they'll look or how they'll be perceived, then they don't use the strategies. They don't use the skills that they know they have. Then all we're doing is for naught, you know? So why not address that massive hurdle? Yeah. I agree. Okay. Um, all right. Well, that's our time. <laughs> what what a great place to end on. Um, I love it. Thank you so much, Dr. Katerina Haley, for joining me, um, talking about aphasia therapy, talking about your work, um, opening my eyes to really, really shifting my practice away from like that, that typical medical model um, that you outlined before and learning how to effectively you know, pull myself um, from that driver's seat and do a better job of guiding and not asking them like, well, what do you want to do in aphasia therapy? Like <laughs> way too broad, way too broad. So thank you for giving me the tools that I can use to, to, to be a better clinician, to have um, better outcomes for my patients so that they feel a part of the process, they're empowered, and then they can take those skills out and use them. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, I, I will also say that I am so, um, I just love being a speech language pathologist. I've been one in two countries now. And I, I think we're an amazing group of professionals. Um, and there are so many strong speech pathologists who are figuring out some of these difficult um, solutions. And I think that the, the greatest power in terms of uh, moving our field forward is going to be when clinicians and researchers and thinkers work together collaboratively um, to, uh, to uh, just really focus on what really matters. For I 100% agree with you on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, that'll be, that'll do it for us then. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 